Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Over the past several years, there's been growing attention to the importance of representation in movies, television, and media overall. And we've seen this through the inclusion of stories from Black, Indigenous, people of color, as well as LGBTQ folks. Of course, representation alone or simply just seeing people on the screen who looks like us is not enough. Uh, we also need a diverse range of folks behind the scenes, writing the stories, and also writing a variety of stories, not just one narrative. To talk more about art, film, and diversity, this morning I am joined by Kibo Drew. Kibo Drew is a filmmaker, writer, poet, dancer, and activist. She is the writer, producer, and director of Ain't I a Woman, which has screened at the Langston Hughes African American Film Festival, among others. And she has also produced numerous award-winning films, which include Don't Fence Me In, Major Mary, and The Karen Refugees from Burma. She is a Cave Canham Poetry Fellow and won the Audre Lorde Pat Parker Award and the Astria Emerging Lesbian Writers Award. She has also won the Irene Weed Dance Award and the Robert Kirkendall Dance Scholarship. Kibo is the Managing Director of the Queer Women of Color Media Arts Project. Welcome Kibo Drew. I am so excited to have you here with us this morning. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me to sh uh, share the morning with you. <laughs> yes, no, thank you for responding to my tweet that I just kind of put out there in the Twitterverse, like, hey, y'all, I am booking guests for Let's Grab Coffee, like shoot your shot. I love when people like amplify themselves, like we don't have to wait for someone else to say, hey, I am an expert or I'm knowledgeable about this or I'm just an awesome person. So I love that you were like, I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> I mean, you know, the more of us are out there telling our stories, the better it is. Um, so I was happy to volunteer as tribute. Yes, yes. And I love that. And, you know, I love what you just said there, like the more of us that are out here telling our stories, because that is what you all do through the Queer Women of Color Media Arts Project. And also just a, a call that has been ongoing, not just in the past several years, I know I kind of framed it in that way, but since forever, right? Because we have a desire that's to tell our stories. Um, that's how we learn about ourselves in telling stories, sharing stories, and having those stories affirmed. Um, so I want to just start there with QuackMap um, and for you to kind of share with us a little bit more about what it is and kind of um, some of the aims that you all have. Sure. Um, well, let me start actually at the beginning. So our founder is Madeline Lim. Um, she is an award-winning filmmaker, independent filmmaker, um, originally from Singapore. So she immigrated to the U.S. So a big part of our kind of understanding of ourselves as an organization is also being immigrant-run. Um, and one of the things that she says all the time is if you have 20 stories by Chinese American lesbians or um, 20 stories of queer, you know, transgender Black folks, you can't stereotype us, right? Because those 20 people are probably going to have 40 opinions, right, about how they're experiencing the world. And so it really broadens our understanding of folks versus kind of um, condensing who we are or shortcutting who we are with real stories. And I think the piece about stories is it's the authenticity, right? Mm -hmm. The truth telling is really important to that because it really just expands our understanding of not only who we are, but who other people are. And it really reaches people's hearts. And that's the important part. Yes, I love that idea of truth telling and having um, not a stereotype, not trying to pigeonhole, okay, well, all people who are of, of this race or this nationality or this immigration background have this one story, because that's certainly not the case. Um, right. 
although mainstream media might try to package it in that way or has packaged it in that way, particularly in the U.S., since we're talking in a U.S. context, um, in one way for a long time. Um, but I love the work that you all are doing is bringing in the wide range of experiences, the differing opinions, the there's not one way to be or think about folks of whatever nationality, ethnicity, race, um, sexuality. And I think that's so important. Yeah, thank you. That's part of why we do the work that we do. And I think, <clears throat> excuse me, the other piece for us is making sure that communities have the tools to tell our own stories, right? So it's not just we want to tell our stories, but do we have those tools? Um, and because film is so super expensive, one of the key programs of QuackMap is free filmmaking training. So we bring folks in. A lot of times people don't have experience with touching cameras, anything like that, don't know how to tell the story. They come in and we start with everything from um, bringing up their idea to writing the script to shooting it to editing so folks get the full gamut of experience on a film and can really figure out like what it is that they like about it um, and which kind of piece you know matches who they are um, builds on their strengths things like that and so we've designed the program so it's really accessible to a wide range of folks so folks that maybe were in foster care or have left school or maybe learned differently and so that way everybody has something they can be successful with and part of the one of our goals for that program is to develop people's creativity, but also their leadership. Right. Mm -hmm. And so everything about the program we're designed to sort support people in their vision. Mm -hmm. Right. And what they want to say. And it can be a really powerful um, one of the church members that I know said we were doing soul work mm -hmm. um, when we could see really the full person and they could really tell a story that they hadn't been able to tell before or hadn't been supported in telling before. Mm, yes, so important what you just said about seeing the full person and giving them a way to kind of bring forth the stories that are within them that maybe they haven't been able to, you know, say out loud or even really understand sometimes for themselves yet, right? Sometimes we don't even have the language or the creative out, outlet to share and craft our stories. So that's so important that you are giving people the tools to kind of put them into motion, quite literally right on film, um, put those stories out there. Um, and as you were speaking, I heard a lot around gatekeeping and not, you know, being gatekeepers to a specific type of technical knowledge um, or a specific type of storytelling, but really making, like you said, making that available to every everyone kind of where they are um, right. in the learning process as well. Exactly. And I think that that's part of the, the thing about film. There's a lot of mystery around it, right? <laughs> it's completely like, what is happening? Nobody knows, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and one of the reasons that, you know, it functions the way that it does and we don't see as many stories is because it's so expensive. So it's like the people who already have access get more access even though there might be a few diversity programs here and there, but it's really something that not as many people have access to. And mm -hmm. so you get used to not seeing your story ever or seeing someone that looks like you that is, you know, in their full humanity. And so by giving folks the tools, it really makes sure that we can not just tell a complex story, right, of who we are, but it also complicates like the issues and how we think about them. Um, one of our group of filmmakers was um, a really great team and they came up with a film together that was about their different stories and histories. So we have um, a woman who is uh, Pakistani and Muslim who talked about the partition in India when India got separated from Pakistan. Then we have a queer Bangladeshi who talks about Pakistan and East Pakistan, which became Bangladesh, right? And so what that does is the next time you see like, let's say, a Bond movie and you've got a villain somehow that's, you know, and the villain is living in Pakistan. It gives you this way of saying, wait a second, I don't have to accept that as the only 
understanding that I have of this group of people because I've heard about someone's nani, their grandfather and their story and the struggles of their family. And so automatically that film juxtaposed with something more mainstream completely shifts how we're understanding this history and these people. And that's something that's really powerful as well, right? Mm -hmm. So you're understanding, wait, that's only of someone's vision and it's only like a fraction of what there is. So when we have these larger conversations, like what's happening in Pakistan? Well, then we start to understand that there was some history there, right? Um, and there's some reasons and some political realities. And I think that's also an important part of telling our own stories is it enables us to really understand history and context. Mm-hmm. You just keyed in on something so important, understanding history in context, because oftentimes we don't even realize that we've um, started to incorporate or believe kind of these little snippets or narratives that we see in kind of mainstream film, right? It just kind of enters into our consciousness. And even without knowing it, sometimes now we're thinking about people from Pakistan, right? In your example, um, in a certain type of way. And it's like, where did those thoughts come from when I haven't had, you know, a full experience? experience or interactions Um, and it's because of these messages that we see from from media and like you mentioned if we've never seen people who look like us that also is impacting how we even think about our existence in this world and who we are or even who we might be able to become Right. And it's really interesting because there's actually been studies done by some of the large universities, UCLA and USC, that have great film programs. And there's a direct correlation between who's behind the camera and what we see on screen. So if we have, and I'm just going to say it out, if we have our kind of cisgender, heterosexual white men behind the lens all the time, what we see in front is usually fewer disabled folks. We see girls as young as 13 sexualized, just like women over the age of 21, right? We see stereotypes of LGBTQ characters. Um, We see them as deserving targets of violence. So who's behind the camera and who's behind that lens really, really affects and shapes the stories that we're seeing. And so we can't deny or undercount how much that affects the framing that we're used to in media. Mm -hmm. And that framing is so important. As you just shared, you know, who's behind the camera is impacting you know, how we're seeing the world now, right? Through this movie or through this television series, it's impacting what we believe. And especially when you may have limited interactions um, with folks of other races or nationalities or ethnicities or, um, you know, sexual orientation, we start to believe, okay, it must be like I'm seeing on this show, or it must be like, you know, kind of this very limited representation. And then when you have these stereotypes that are continuing to be repeated across types of media, then you're like, okay, well, this must just must be how they are, right? Yeah, I mean, but it doesn't just affect how we see other people, but it affects how we see ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? Um, we did a series with the transgender cultural district here in San Francisco. And it was the time when we brought all of our transgender folks of color, trans black folks, Latinx, um, Asian folks together as filmmakers uh, within a screening. And one of the really powerful things that happened was the host of that screening said the first time she ever saw a transgender person on television was a dead body on the law and order TV series, right? So that's her seeing herself as like a young transgender Asian woman. This is the only representation I have is of someone that is not even alive, right? And that really, really impacts how we understand ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And how we're moving in the world. And I think that that's something that we don't talk about enough. We don't um, 
really get into the impact of that, right? Because it can cause all kinds of, you know, again, there are more studies around stress and cortisol reactions and just the impact of that kind of representation, including hate speech, right? That has an impact on our physical health and our mental health as well. And so constantly seeing images where you're dehumanized doesn't lead you to feel good about who you are. So that's why we get excited about representation, right? It's like, oh, okay, here's someone who's like me doing something different, maybe struggling like I am, but also triumphing like I might or succeeding. And I think that's a really important piece as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I can just think about, you know, myself as an Asian American woman, like when was the first time I saw, you know, myself represented and maybe it was, you know, figure skating, you know, for my kind of generation, right? <laughs> thinking about um, different figure skating stars at that time. Um, but it was very limited, right? It was extremely limited. And that's why just speaking from an Asian American experience, you know, so often, again, folks, again, of my generation would have similar experiences of of, oh, you must be related to Jackie Chan or, you know, just like very kind of similar um, key individual Asian Americans that they could kind of latch onto, but that's Mm -hmm. it. And so you think, okay, well, maybe it's, for me, it's martial arts. Are these my choices in life? Like martial arts or figure skating or being, you know, the the friend that's shunned or made fun of um, Mm -hmm. or over-sexualized or maybe under-sexualized, right? Or whatever. But like you mentioned, not a full person in a full range of humanity with experiences of love, of joy, of loss, of, you know, just the full range of the human experience. And Mm -hmm. so you begin to say, well, I must just be this really small, you know, I must be really small. I have to make my small or, you know, all of these full ranges of love, especially we think a lot about, you know, romantic partners in, in, you know, that must not be for me. And it does start to shift kind of how you're thinking about yourself. Right. And I think that also it affects sometimes whether we feel like we can be empowered and we can change things. Um, You know, QuackMap works a lot with native community as well. Right. And so, one of the things that we know about native and indigenous communities is like even being able to go to a powwow and see yourself represented and see either not just your own particular culture, your tribe and your language, but all of the different range of like an intertribal event really allows you to make different kinds of choices, right? When you see yourself represented in a different light, that means that you can do things, well, I don't have to be this limited image, I can be something else. And it really opens up some possibility And it's not without understanding, like there's some structural issues that prevent us, but just that ability to say, wait a second, I even noticed that there's structural issues happening and that's limiting and putting me into a small, tiny box. Maybe I need to do this a little differently. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Um, That empowerment piece, you know, sometimes, you know, we don't even know that we have that power, right, that we can have that kind of self agency, and then we also have that community power as well. Um, And so I think that is another really important piece of what you all are doing um, with QuackMap as well as give again, giving folks the tools to kind of tell their own stories. Um, And also, I think that's, that is so self-empowering to know, like I've one mastered this technical skill, but then also that I can tell a story that really resonates with my experience. I don't have to just kind of sit back and only see or feel resigned to what's already out there. So I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think it's when, excuse me, when we're doing things together, right? Um, Marianne Kaba, who is a prison abolitionist, talks about anything worth doing is worth doing with other people, Mm -hmm. right? So at QuackMap, we teach in a group, people learn together, build those relationships, and then we bring the films into our our film festival, and everything we do is free of charge. So that's a big you know, removes a lot of barriers for folks as well. And when we bring the films into the film festival, we also solicit films from around the world. So our filmmakers get a chance to kind of go toe to toe with folks from all parts, right? Turkey, um, India, Japan. And then 
the other piece that we do is because so many of those themes are really important is we partner with all kinds of different organizations. So like the Chicana Latina Foundation, which is one of the only organizations in the country that provides um, scholarships to undocumented students. Mm. So we'll partner with them and that will highlight some of the themes of the film and then we'll have discussions. And so what ends up happening, um, for example, we did a whole piece on um, queer migration. So instead of calling it immigration, we're talking about like how people migrate. That's like a human thing, right? Um, and what happens is that people understand like, oh, wait a minute, my understanding of the LGBTQ you know, community migrating, usually what happens is that it's same ethnicity, same race, except one member of the couple has US citizenship and the other one doesn't. And that happens a lot. And so then we start understanding, whoa, wait a second, this is what's really, really happening. These are the issues that are pushing people. And so then other folks can say, wait a second, I didn't know what to think about this particular issue, but now I know what to do, mm. right? So then they can take action and we're thinking about that collectively, right? Mm. Not just I'm having individual awareness, but what can we do that's different together so in some ways, it's a little bit like um, African futurism or Afrofuturism or even indigenous futurism, where we're understanding our traditions and things that have happened in the past. And we're creating almost like a snapshot of the world we want to create in the present. Right. So we're thinking about our future. So at the film festival, we have ASL, we have open captions, we have free childcare, we have free food, we have crisis counselors, all those things that people need to feel safe mm -hmm. and feel comfortable and feel welcome and included like they belong are all part of what we bring into the circle for this few days of the film festival. And it's an example of, yes, we can have everyone from babies to great grandparents in the same room. And for, I know for Navajo culture and for other native cultures, that's a healing when you have that many generations in a room at the same time. So that's also part of bringing folks together is what ways can we heal and change and how can we imagine a better world so we can get to a better world. Mm -hmm. I love that. And what you just ended on, I think is important, right? How can we imagine a better world, right? We have to imagine it first. We have mm -hmm. to think it and believe it in our minds first before we can see it in our, you know, physical world. And, you know, kind of this whole conversation, even, you know, what we see or in film and television, sometimes that can limit, right? To bring it back to what we said before, even limit what we think is possible, not just for us, but for our community and for our world. So, for folks listening, I think you really laid out just kind of key foundational elements of what should be present when we're thinking about, okay, whether it's gathering folks right together and making sure like, how do we show people that you are seen, you are welcome. This is what we do in all of our events, having childcare, having trauma counselors, having, right, all these different resources you don't have to ask for. It's not an accommodation. Mm -hmm. It is the world that we want to live in and create. And, you know, I think that was just a great example because I know people often think, well, what can we do? What can we do? This, you can do this. <laughs> you, can right. do, you can do this as a, as a starting point. You could do this. So thank you so much for sharing that um, with us. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We are here on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Kibo Drew, the Managing Director of the Queer Women of Color Media Arts project. And we've been talking about all the great work uh, that you all do at QuackMap and also getting into this idea of, you know, imagining our futures, co-creating a future where all of us are seen, all of us are present and all of us are valued. And, you know, when I think about everything that you've shared kind of before the break, it really is just reminding me of how much, um, 
arts and politics um, go together. And oftentimes we wanna have this kind of false divide um, between those, but truly, you know, what we see in art is political. Um, and even the idea of it not being political is political. <laughs> um, and I, I kind of see that or think about that in some of in some of the ways that QuackMap kind of is intentional around the voices that it wants to amplify and the vision that you all have for your organization as well. Very true. I mean, I even want to take it back to Memphis, right? Yes, come on. <laughs> so, um, you know, before uh, my grandmother passed, at one point we were going through the photo albums and she showed me a picture of the storm that um, prevented Martin Luther King Jr. from speaking in Memphis mm -hmm. and how his talk got rescheduled two months later when he was later then assassinated. And my grandmother said, this is a picture, we call this the storm before the storm, right? All of the snow and everything else that prevented him from speaking. And I think even during that time, you know, my family moved from Mississippi to Memphis when my mother was eight years old because um, my grandparents were sharecroppers and they really spent a lot of time um, kind of struggling under Jim Crow South, right? Mm -hmm. um, but also being real strivers, you know, wanting to make a change. And one of the things that my mother talked about, you know, going to, it was Memphis State and um, and spending some time at Lemoyne Owen for a while um, before that was the sense that um, we could do something and things could change, but also understanding that all of that political action that was happening during the civil rights era, there was also an artistic movement, movement happening at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, thinking about the freedom singers and all of those songs that really got people, um, that made people feel courage, right? And connected to each other and how important that cultural moment was in terms of like, we have Mahalia, <laughs> we have Lena Horne, and we have folks like Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte and all of those artists, um, <clears throat> Ruby Dee and Ozzie Davis being a part of that movement. And so one of the things that QuackMab understands is that for every single social movement, there's an artistic movement happening along with it. And the artists have a role in shaping, documenting, um, being a part of what those changes are that are happening as well, right? Mm -hmm. And also understanding that that's a legitimate form of doing movement work. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we forget that or we have a society that's like, that's art, that's entertainment, it doesn't matter. But most of the art and entertainment is reinforcing the status quo, right? Versus the folks in community that are like, wait a second, this is what I have to say. And that being really important um, in terms of, it's, it's almost like um, nourishing two trees at the same time and they're becoming not just like this individual tree is politics and movement work and this is art but understanding um you know i live in california so the redwoods you can't just have one or two redwoods right you gotta have like a whole group of them and they work together and that makes it much stronger and so this notion that somehow art is divided <laughs> from what we're doing is one of those things that I think makes us less strong. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for, for really illustrating that for us, because as you mentioned, you know, arts is movement work. And I think we can think about it, especially through song, because so much of those shared emotions come through in song. Um, but even when you think about protest or, you know, shared protest chants or shared singing when you're, you know, in, you know, walking or protesting or it is a shared emotion. Um, it is a shared language, um, but it also can be a rallying cry around a particular issue. And it is all intertwined because our lives are not 
you know, kind of separated into these different pieces of ourselves, but art is part of who we are as well. Um, we are all artists, even though we may not be professionals, <laughs> um, but, but we all create, right? We all create and we all express in some way. Yeah, and I think it's important also just to note that for communities of color, right? This is something we really have to talk about because depending on what your culture is like in Latin America and um, we have like black folks and a lot of music that we understand is like the popular music that is Latinx music is coming from not only um, black and African roots but it also has indigenous roots, right? And so there's something about our, our particular cultures where it might be um, our folks do beating or we do silver work or we do singing or we do dance or we do theater but that's something that is very um, important to us as our different cultures right um, and I think sometimes we lose that because the mainstream model and this is just something I talk about all the time is that when we understand kind of our um the history of classical art forms, right? Then we start to understand how that reinforces the status quo. So for example, um, Louis XIV used ballet to control his nobles in his court, right? He used dance as a way to control them. And so ballet and its history, even though it's, you know, there've been all kinds of dancers who really sort of um, contributed to it, there is a history there that we need to understand and how that reinforces what we're doing. But culturally, we have all of these like amazing dance forms and traditional dress and even our food, right? Our food ways are important as well. And I think that that's something that people draw a lot of strength from. But if we're busy comparing it to um, the so-called high arts, then we're thinking that we're always less than. Um, I had an experience with the San Francisco Symphony where um, we were kind of talking and someone said, oh, you know, I think that, you know, to really get people into the symphony, we just need to take a bunch of instruments and just jam together and people will understand music. And I actually said to him, I was like, well, you know, the, the formation of this kind of classical music and symphonies is less than 500 years old. And a lot of African African dance forms, those families that have been dancing or drumming have been doing it for thousands of years or even, um, you know, musical forms like in Bali, that's been going on for quite a while. So those traditions and that discipline and that um, teaching of that art form is something that is much, much older and has much more um, refinement because it's so much older than a lot of what we think are the classics. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, I think it's so important to have this conversation because as you pointed out, once we start to buy into this divide of, you know, lowbrow art or highbrow art, then we are making these comparisons when really there doesn't have to be a comparison. Each art form on its own is enough on its own. It doesn't have to be compared. They are different and distinct and they should be. And it doesn't have to be a comparison to what is better. None of them are better. They're just different. And they're mm -hmm. reflexive of particular histories, um, particular contexts, um, particular migration and immigrations, right? Um, and of course, always, as with everything, um, laden with power and power relationships, right? And that is just a part of, you know, every piece of our life, even the conversation around, well, this is high art, this is low art, or, mm -hmm. you know, this type of music is better for this reason or that reason. Um, but it all comes down to who gets to decide, right? Who gets to make these decisions? who gets to say what is um, valuable or what is characteristic of um, something mm -hmm. that we say as, you know, high culture. Right, exactly. And I think it's important to, to say that it's not better, right? It's about that power relationship because it's also a healing when we say, oh, my particular, like, again, going back to powwows, like this dance form, like a hoop dance or a shawl dance or a jingle dance, like that's 
my thing. And that's a beautiful thing because it's also like how we imagine the world, right? And how we understand the world. Um, and some of the things that we don't give credit to, the innovations or the creativity, right? Or the power, even the formation of the US Constitution, we forget or conveniently forget or ignore, right? The native folks and their participatory democracy that actually started in the 1100s, right? <laughs> so while Europe was like, we don't know what's going on, native folks here in the Northeast were like, this is what it's all about, right? And so I think that if we know those kinds of things, it also gives us a possibility of what we can do differently. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I mean, I think it kind of relates back to what you said um, in the first segment, which is that um, people who already have access get more access. So we just continue to build upon kind of the, the privilege and power that has been instituted um, by force, you know, by might, by will, um, and forgetting that, okay, what are the ramifications in the present day of some of these past decisions? Mm -hmm. And if we are committed to creating a different type of future, what would we then have to do? What would, what would that look like? And then what would that require of us as well? Right. And I think, you know, it seems very big because it is. Right? <laughs> it seems like a lot because it is. Um, but I also think that there's thing and, you know, one of the things about, um, you know, my grandmother passing is that people could learn about what she did and the kinds of things that she did. Um, you know, they were among some black farmers um, in Memphis that when they decided to put the highway, the north south, um, they you know, it was eminent domain and they actually said, wait a second, <laughs> you can't just take this land from us. Um, and they actually organized. Or when they moved out to Rossville, a small thing that they could do was host the doctors to come out and put the medical clinic there, right? Or even joining the PTA, not to say, this is what I want for my kids and I don't care about other kids, right? Because that's sometimes what happens, but this is what I want for all of these children um, in all of these schools. And of course they were segregated schools back then, but this is what I want for our community, right? My grandmother didn't necessarily have as much access to education. And so she wanted to make sure that everybody got access. And I think there's that community-minded piece that allows us to think, wait a minute, there's something I can do here. So instead of feeling disempowered by the enormity of everything, saying this is something I can do um, and understanding that, you know, when the least of us is harmed, that hurts everybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and understanding also that when we do small things for the good of all of us, it helps everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are ways that we kind of forget that, or we're so used to thinking like, for example, the disabled community, um, sick and disabled folks have been doing things like making sure um, that everybody has curb cutouts, right, in their sidewalks, which everybody uses those curb cutouts, right? Um, or making sure that we're thinking about even our COVID response very differently. And they've been sounding the alarm for the past couple of years. And even one of the reasons that QuackMap is able to do what we do is because we listen to the sick and disabled community really closely. And they said, do this, do this, this is what's gonna happen. And so in some ways we were able to anticipate because we were listening to the folks that are most impacted um, to tell us what to do. And I think we're not used to that. And that makes us feel like we can't do anything. But there are folks who are on the ground who say, who are doing something. And so find those folks as well. Mm -hmm. I think it can be a different orientation depending upon um, kind of how far you've come so far, kind of mm -hmm. what your experience has been. It can be a, a very different orientation to actually listen to people and realize you don't know everything <laughs> or that people are experiencing the world in different ways than you are. Mm -hmm. um, but then also not feeling overwhelmed, as you mentioned, with there's so much to do because there is so much <laughs> to do. <laughs> but knowing that when you are part of a community um, and two, that as you mentioned, you could do something small that, you know, 
will maybe snowball into something bigger or maybe mm-hmm. we'll just be that one small thing but it's still something that is making a difference right and it's i think it's important and i mean that's even part of like why quack map is the way that it is it was one filmmaker um you know again who had a particular story like one of the reasons that madeline Lim left singapore was because um her art is her art and her activism was something that the government at the time was not into, to put it very kindly. Um, and so she left right ahead of different waves of arrests of folks, um, including, you know, like teachers and professors and lawyers, all kinds of folks. Um, and I think that history of saying, okay, I can do one thing myself as a filmmaker. I can make so many films per year or usually independent filmmakers. It'll take like five years or longer. Um, But what if we have a community of filmmakers, right? Telling all of these different stories, not just about ourselves, but about things that we're really, really into. Like we have one of our filmmakers um, that we just awarded a grant to. She is really into understanding um, taquerias and tacos stands and taco trucks across the state of California, right? And how important that kind of food is, right? That we're kind of like, oh, that's cheap. We don't care, sort of, right? But like understanding the history, the what it's tied to, and it's a sense of like, oh, this is something to be happy about and prideful in, right? We can have some pride there. Um, And I think that, you know, she took this small thing of I can do so much as an individual, but let me do something that changes the film industry as a whole by making sure that it's more of us in the industry telling more stories. And that at the time was a very small thing um, and it's grown over the years. And I think that each of us can do something again, really small, maybe you put in a free library, who knows? But again, it's, it's that doing something small actually can help all of us. Mm-hmm. And I think we time, sometimes don't feel that we can do something, um, but there's so much that can be done. And I think that's the other thing I learned from my family is like, let me do something. Um, anything, even if it's just like, okay, I'm giving money to the Memphis Food Bank, and of course, always give cash to the food bank, (laughs) or I'm volunteering to serve a meal, or whatever it is, and I think that that also replenishes our spirit as we're giving and going, Um, and not to, I don't mean to sound too soapboxy, (laughs) but I just think that it's just one of those things that's like, because there's so much that would lead us to despair that again, I'll go back to Mariam Kaba, um, hope is a practice. Mm. So every day we have to do something deliberate that hope is a practice. And so me taking an action is me saying, okay, I'm gonna have hope. Mm -hmm. Yes, I love that hope is a practice. It really is. And that those small acts, as you just mentioned, you know, if done well, and if done consistently, they do something for our community, they do something for ourselves. And, you know, we are social creatures, we are communal creatures, even as much as particularly in the US, we're all about individualism, and, you know, you know, yourself and your own choices. And, and it's really goes against everything that we are, you know, as human beings who are meant to be social creatures, who are meant to be in community. And Mm -hmm. sometimes um, that dis-ease that we feel is because we're not connected, is because we're not doing that one small act that we know we could do um, that keeps us connected to a community. And that tells us to ourselves that I am part of a community and I am important um and you know my contributions they are leading to something good Mm -hmm. for for all of us you know collectively and i it's funny because i think um you know they've done a lot of research around addiction and they say that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety it's connection Mm. And so I found that that's been really interesting to think about, or even uh, different Native cultures have a concept about being in right relationship with each other, right? And we don't talk about that often enough. 
you know, how to be in right relationship and, and what that means sort of as a community together, but also whatever communion happens with our spiritual centers. And that's something that QuackMap emphasizes a lot is how can we be in relationship with each other? It's not just an individual filmmaker and their success. It's a community of filmmakers. And I think that's one of the things that we emphasize so much in everything that we do, um, including like when we send our films, like QuackMap films, there's over 400 and we're almost at 460 word, 459 <laughs> of the different films that have been created over the years. And we'll send them to um, churches and synagogues and mosques so that people can have conversation and, you know, have that relationship with each other, talking about things in a place that it feels safe to do so and feels comfortable and welcoming. And then that can change even how these different spiritual communities are moving together as well and moving in community. And I think that, again, it's like art helping to facilitate that kind of relationship that I think is one of the reasons probably why most of the folks are like, art is not important <laughs> because that's some powerful stuff, right? So it's easier to think, oh, it's not important, but it really, really is. Um, so that is something that we constantly are emphasizing, like what's the community? How do we build community? Um, how do we build things together as opposed to someone's individual vision, right? Mm -hmm. So even the vision for QuackMap is one filmmaker thinking of something, but it became about a collective response. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes, so important. And I, I really appreciate that you all share the films um, and that folks can generate conversations. Sometimes art gives us that vehicle to have conversations that we might not otherwise have. Um, and in these spaces, as you mentioned, um, spaces that are safe, spaces that people already feel kind of a connection and community and having art just kind of layer on top of that to continue to build community connections, but also to maybe, um, get a little dangerous, right? And, and remind people of themselves and the power that they have, you know, as a collective as well. And I think that is the, the importance of art. Uh, well, let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Kibo Drew, the Managing Director of the Queer Women of Color Media Arts Project. And we have been talking a lot about community, the power of the collective, and of course, the power of art. Um, and you know what we haven't heard yet is how you came to, came to the arts. Um, you're quite an accomplished artist. Um, in a variety of different types of arts and media. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you got introduced to the arts. That's actually a really good question. Um, so, um, you know, after my mother graduated from Memphis State at the time, University of Memphis, um, there was a lot going on in the world, you know, it was early 70s. Um, and we moved to Chicago where my brother was born. We were in New York. And then we decided to, well, I should say my parents decided to do something interesting. And that was to take us to Mexico. And there were a lot of black folks from the US and Mexico at the time. Um, and one of the things that my mom did when she was there was she was in a play. <laughs> and so I was constantly seeing sort of art around. I even found out that my grandfather in World War II um, used to make jewelry as a way to make extra money when he was a soldier. Um, so it's always been something that I think is a part of just family and culture. But then I got to see, you know, my mother um, sort of be that. And so even when we moved to Oregon, um, she actually had a role in Animal House, but then she was starting a job that same day. So she gave the role to a friend. Um, but it was the, the 
kind of black arts and culture were always really important. So she was always paying attention to what was happening in jazz. Um, she was also really good friends with a noted artist uh, where we lived. And so she still has his works in her house in Memphis now. Um, so it was always something that was around. And then I went to a grade school that was an alternative grade school. So I was in the dance groups there. Um, we used to put on musicals. We even put in a course line once. <laughs> and so that was something that was very important to me. Even in high school, um, I went to a performing arts high school. So I was involved in dance there. Again, just kind of sort of continuing the being involved in arts. And I think the powerful thing for me was I was doing my art. I'm dancing. Um, I'm a part of a community of uh, Black poets. We either call it, some people call it cave canem or cave canem, many different things. It actually um, <laughs> is an organization for Black poets, and it's the range of Black poets. Um, and one of the things that was important for me was figuring out how I could merge what I was seeing in the change I wanted to see in the world and my art. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a really important connection to be able to do that. And it was something that I struggled with for a while because I didn't actually know the history of artists and movement. So I thought that I could only do this thing and, you know, whatever was happening with social change was on the side. And so <laughs> I didn't get that I could do both. Mm -hmm. And once I figured out that I could do both, that there were poets like June Jordan, um, that there were folks like Toni Morrison and Audre Lorde, once I figured that piece out, then my art became a lot more focused um, and a lot more, I think, refined and specific. But it also gave me a sense that, um, that even my film, Ain't I a Woman, is about how Black women are not seen as feminine and, um, you know, not seen as being able to hurt or be in pain, um, but also understanding even just the history of the South and sexual assault of Black women and being able to connect all of those different stories in a way um, that celebrated kind of our beauty and also our healing. Mm -hmm. And to be able to do that creatively in a way that really, I think was healing for me, but for other folks as well, right? Um, and even just to be able to, to learn about filmmaking, because I learned through QuackMap. Um, I took one of the early workshops back in 2000 when it, the organization first started, but even having triumphs, like being able to fit Black women of different skin tones in the same shot and have everybody lit perfectly, was like, you know, it's like my pet peeve, but also something I could do creatively. Um, and, and to have a sense where I think it's sometimes I look at it in wonder of like, this is the power of what I can do creatively. And it's something that um, is really inspiring to me, but also I get really super excited about. Um, QuackMap is uh, in the midst of, um, basically I'm serving as producer for a film called um, Jewel, about Jewel Gomez, who is, um, African-American and Cape Verdean and um, also Iowa. <laughs> so her family came from the Iowa reservation. And she's also a descendant of Massasoit, who is who Massachusetts is named for. Um, and to be able to kind of combine, here's a story of someone who is native and black and a lesbian and a writer and a playwright and bringing all of those different worlds together and how that really um, is really powerful for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. um, and that just fills me up. And yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to describe my own art because I'm a little modest about it. <laughs> but that is something that I'm, I'm a part of. And it, it, um, I think it makes me the human that I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, as I was listening to you, 
that's what was coming to mind. Like we are these complex and sometimes complicated um, people. And I think we kind of sometimes grow up thinking we have to suppress parts of ourselves or this piece of ourselves is only for when I'm around these people or in this context. Uh, but the, the healing that comes with integrating all of ourselves and realizing that um, there's no reason to feel shame or ashamed of any piece of who we are and really accepting that. I heard that coming through in, you know, kind of what you were describing um, and the power of art, you know, what you mentioned that, you know, that early piece that you made, Ain't I a Woman, thinking about, like you said, it was healing for you, but it was also healing for other people. And that kind of goes back to that, you know, like what is the the one small or, or not so small thing that you can do um, that is, it becomes healing, not just for you, but also for other people. And I think that is the power of art. I, yeah, I was just, I'm like so wound up in it, but I think, I mean, I, that really resonates for me because I also, you know, art saved me in a lot of ways. And I think that that's the part that we forget about. Like a lot, if you talk to a lot of artists and depending on our background, we'll say, yeah, art saved me or art got me out of a bad situation or something like that. And I feel like we don't talk about that enough mm -hmm. <laughs> about that power because it doesn't seem as concrete but it is something that is really like core to kind of who we are as people being able to express who we are ourselves mm -hmm. because so often it gets kind of smushed to the side or you're not told that you can express and that ability to be able to express even just something really, really, really painful um, is really important because it gives us a, a perspective that we didn't have before. And I even just think back to my experiences in dance, you know, I didn't have the willowy body type, <laughs> even when I was a kid, you know, I was a very solid kid. And then, you know, as I grew older as a fat dancer, right. And I'm using the word fat, not as a pejorative, but, you know, as part of fat liberation. And it was really, really hard in some places to dance, no matter how good I was and how talented I was. There was one dance class where it was so bad, the sort of little comments that people would make. <laughs> um, in addition to the fact that it was a West African dance form, and there were a lot of folks that were not West African taking the dance for, who had a lot of privilege and the ways that they talked about the dance form was really hard. So I would have to talk myself through a three hour dance class, but there was something really powerful because our cultures create the dance forms or the music forms that speak to who we are. So, West African dance for me with the body that I have and even the body I had then, our bodies were made to do those dance forms, right? And so the things that I could do with this body because the dance was made for bodies like mine, that was something that was really powerful for me. And it took me a while to figure that out. But then when I started understanding that for a lot of Black women, dance was a place where we had control, complete control over our bodies, which is really important that I think we don't talk about enough. But also there's something about those dance forms where you not only have control over your body, but you're also controlling space and time in the way that you're moving. And that is something that is so, it's, 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 it, it almost like it, it alters something fundamental, like on a at a really deep level um, because I think even for a lot of folks that are sexual assault survivors, like the about ability to have control over your body and to say what is happening with your body is a big thing. Um, and so it felt like it was a way for me to move and control and, and to um, take into myself something that was healing. Mm-hmm.
Yes. You know, as I was listening, I was hearing, you know, the importance of being able to be fully in your body and also feeling connected to your body. Like this is my body that I move in a specific way that does this for me, not for someone else, not, you know, at the pleasure of someone else or not under the gaze of someone else, but for me. And it really speaks to this desire that I do think is a human desire or just innate within us of agency of being able to create right and maybe that is in dance or in film or in making jewelry right but being able to say like I can bring something into fruition um, and that itself can be very healing because oftentimes like you said we don't get to express ourselves we're told that you know our experiences aren't real or the way we feel is wrong or that we can't create that um, or whatever it is so being able to express ourselves through art and having a vehicle for it and, and especially having the support right for it as well is 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 very freeing mm -hmm. and I think that you know a lot of us get pushed out <laughs> you know there's a lot of pushing out and I think what we try to do at Quackmap is bring in mm -hmm. right bring people in instead of pushing folks out like one of you know, my kind of work success things is when someone says, oh, I didn't know anybody, but I didn't feel uncomfortable. Like mm -hmm. I felt welcomed and I felt okay. And that for me is really important because I've experienced being pushed out, you know, so being welcomed in. And I think that through my art, that was also something that was really important to me, even though I know as an artist, I tend to scare people. Um, <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. Um, but I, you know, was in a screenwriting class some years ago, wrote a, you know, full length screenplay. And I had some of the other students in my class act out one of the scenes. And I was really taking certain family stories that I had heard and sort of putting them together in this film. And so one of the stories was about my great grandmother and kind of the relationship between my great grandfather and, and my great-grandmother's father um, and kind of what that meant as a young black girl and um, uh, kind of dealing with racism of the time and also the sexual violence at the time. And I had uh, two of my classmates kind of act out the scene and it totally freaked them out. Like they were really frightened of it and it's not a horror movie. <laughs> It's just a conversation about very real things that have happened in the South, right? And that was really terrifying and hard for them emotionally to just even go through a short, it was like a five minute scene. And I realized that that's something, you know, I'm a very um, cheerful person and I tell a lot of jokes, but in terms of my art, it's something that hits people in a certain way. And that also took me a long time to just realize like, oh, I'm not gonna be the artist where everybody's like, yay, I'm the artist where people kind of go in the corner and think about things really hard after a while, you know, and kind of like got freaked out a little bit. Like that's the kind of artist that I am and I'm okay with that. <laughs> Yes, um, <laughs> we need you know, all and, the forms of art, though, the ones that yeah. do make us go yay and the ones that make us go, ooh, I need to think yeah. about some things and maybe even, you know, have some conversations with some other folks about. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, like Mad, uh, Madeline Lim, our founder and executive director, you know, for all of her films, she wants people to cry. <laughs> and so when they're crying, part of her is like, yay, you cried, <laughs> right? But it's because she wants those, that emotion people to feel something and I think that's the piece around art that's very different than kind of how we logically explain things to people like yeah that makes sense and you know we've engaged in critical thinking and we know and we've got the facts right and sometimes people can absorb facts and sometimes they need to feel something I mean our feelings are not facts which any good therapist will tell you <laughs> But it is important to feel something, right? To have that emotion or that excitement. And I think that sometimes we also dismiss that, right? Like, oh no, your feelings aren't important. 
And I think that's a mistake, <laughs> right? Like the emotion of kids who saw Black Panther or saw um, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, or even we just saw Eternals with Jimmy Chan or um, even the young um, child in Encanto and said, oh, that's me, right? That's, that's me. That is also a certain kind of oh, I'm feeling something. And we dismiss feelings as not concrete but, and not as real. But one of the things that we even understand in, in creating change and doing movement work is you have to address how folks feel. You have to address what's happening in their hearts because if you're just dealing with like what is happening mentally, it's, all, it's half the story, right? And we don't, see ourselves as fully human beings where those feelings matter. Um, you know, I know that folks uh, tend to feel like diversity is like that's a soft skill. And I always tell people that's actually a hard skill. You need training and you need experience and you need some expertise and study to understand how to do that. It's not just simple, like we all just came together and it was all great and we hugged because it, it, it doesn't work like that. Right. And it takes real intention to be able to do that well. Um, and I don't think that we actually understand what are hard skills and what are hard skills. <laughs> right. So I think that there's some things that are far more difficult that we think are easy. Um, I mean, I even think about like sociology and the history of like W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, and his kind of understanding of what we do in sociology and the importance of that, right? Um, one of my close friends is the director of San Francisco Women Against Rape um, and her PhD is all around sexual assault. Um, in sociology, it's about sexual assault in black women and we need that kind of study, right? And we need that kind of understanding. And I think sometimes we think our important, our feelings are, um, the same as facts, but we need both. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say that because I think it's really important <laughs> to sort of understand the importance of folks that are in community doing that work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes, we need we need the feelings. We need the feelings. We definitely need the facts. <laughs> yeah. um, and we need the arts as well, um, which cannot be separated from the politics. So it all is really, you know, full personhood, full, mm -hmm. full experience, and hopefully creating spaces where we can bring our full self um, into a, you know, a collective future that is good for everyone. Well, Kibo, it has been such an honor and pleasure to have you here with us this morning. Um, thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing just so much of, of yourself and all the great work that you're doing with QuagMap. Thank you for having me and hello, Memphis. <laughs> I just had to give a shout out there um, to my mom and my brother and the rest of my family, my aunts and cousins. Um, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you again to Kibo Drew, who is the Managing Director of the Queer Women of Color Media Arts Project. What a fun and engaging and informative conversation. And don't worry, if you're joining late, you can catch the replay of this episode or any previous episodes of Let's Grab Coffee. They're archived on wyxr.org on the show page. And of course, you can also subscribe in podcast format on whatever your favorite streaming podcast app is. Um, for today's positive note, I just wanted to, you know, share with you or remind you of, some, of a quote that Kibo shared with us in our conversation. Um, and that is something from Marianne Cabo, which says, hope is a practice. It's a practice, y'all. Um, I love that idea of, you know, we have, we have something to do. We need to do it. Um, hope is a practice. Well, until next Monday, I'm Sanaa. 